0: No purchase necessary void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. <laughs> As you heard on this week's follow-up, we've had a major development in our investigation. On Sunday evening, listener Ed Logan made a post on the Facebook fan page titled in bold, Newly Discovered Evidence. Sector data shows Robert and Christian were on the road to Becky's on the night of the murders, IMO. The heading was followed by a very long post where Ed says that he's looked over the sector data, consulted with a former Verizon tower engineer, and lays out his reasonings for his conclusion. As you can imagine, Ed almost broke the internet that night. As of this recording, the post has over 400 comments. If Ed is correct, then the case for Robert and Christian's innocence would become bleak. While showing where the two were two and a half hours before Becky's body was lit on fire wouldn't exactly be a slam dunk for the state, if they were proven to be driving south on Highway 74 towards her house... At the time they said they were headed back to Christian's house, honestly, I would probably have to drop the case. I'm not here to get guilty people out of prison. I do this work, and I believe that you're all here doing it with me, because we want justice for the victims, and we want freedom for the innocent. As you can imagine, I didn't get much sleep on Sunday night. Aside from the barrage of comments and messages that I needed to respond to, I was trying all night to wrap my brain around how all of this evidence could support their innocence, and yet the cell phone location data all but proves their guilt. Something wasn't adding up, so at 5 a.m. on Monday, I got to work. I needed to know the truth about this phone call, and it didn't take long to find it. This is Season 12, Episode 45, Eastbound. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out
1: at Chessington.com.
0: As I explained on the follow-up, I've known that this sector data exists for a while now. I was planning to wait until after the habeas petitions are filed to have them analyze and cover them on the podcast. That being said, sometimes plans have to change. In this case, the fact that another group had access to the case file, they also found it and shared the data and presented their conclusions to the audience, obviously that makes it necessary for me to cover it now. As we begin, I'm going to try to break down and explain some terms and break down Ed's analysis for you. I think this is a good starting point, both because not everyone's seen it and I've seen people all over social media incorrectly citing what Ed said. I've been tagged in posts claiming that a cell tower expert has analyzed the data and proved that Robert and Christian were heading towards Becky's house on Highway 74 just before the murders. And first of all, That's not at all what Ed said in his post. What he said was that he discussed the sector data document with someone who used to work as a Verizon tower engineer, and from my understanding of his explanation, the engineer explained to him how to read the document and generally how tower connections work. With that information, Ed did his own analysis and came to a conclusion. His conclusion is not an expert analysis, and he never claimed that it was. In fact, in a conversation that I had with Ed today, he said that since he made that post, he's shifted his conclusion a bit. His initial post stated that his opinion was that the evidence shows Robert and Christian were traveling south on Highway 74 towards Becky's house during this 7.13 p.m. phone call. But since then, he's shifted, and now his position is that prior to having the sector data, that scenario of the guys driving down 74 was a possibility... And now he sees it as a probability. I'm mostly pointing that out so that you understand that the noise about this on social media is not coming from Ed. He put forth his best effort and made clear that the conclusion was simply his opinion based on a discussion that he had with a former Verizon Tower engineer. All that being said, I'm going to make two statements right up front. Number one, I like Ed, I think he's a good person, with good intentions, and I appreciate his efforts here. He had and maintains all the respect in the world from me. And secondly, he is dead wrong about what this data is showing. Ed and I agree on a lot of the things included in his post. First and foremost, the information that he says he got from the engineer is accurate as far as I can tell. I've spoken with three people who work in this field throughout this week, and they all agree on some basic facts. So let me give you the basics so that, one, you know what the hell I'm talking about, and two, so you understand the terms I'll be using as I break all this down. This entire discussion revolves around a single phone call. At 7.13 p.m., Becky called Robert's cell phone. He ignored the call, and it went to voicemail. The call was connected to his phone or handset, as you're going to hear it called throughout this discussion, for 27 seconds. Those 27 seconds were critical to the state's case. The reason is that the calls prior to this aren't in question. Robert and Christian both said that around 7 p.m. they were headed to the Sacred Heart Catholic Church that's located on Fred Waring Street near the location where Highway 111 meets Highway 74. The phone records show Robert calling the church around that time, and the state doesn't contest the fact that they were headed in that direction. The 7.13pm call is important because it represents a critical moment in our timeline. Both the state and defense contend that around 7pm, Robert and Christian left Robert's house in Cathedral City and headed south down 111. The defense says that the guys were headed to the church and the state says that they were headed towards Highway 74 to go to Becky's house. Prior to analyzing the sector data, two possibilities existed. One was that Robert and Christian did exactly what they said they did. When they found out they were too late to go to church, they turned around and headed back to Christian's house. The other is that the state is right, and after making the call to the church, the guys continued south and turned onto Highway 74, which goes south off of 111 and heads up the hill to Becky's. The problem was that all that was known at trial was that the call connected to cell tower 745, which is located about a mile and a half down 74. But that tower has coverage both on 74 and in the valley, so either version of events could have been true. After this call, the phones are dark, The next call that attempts to connect with Robert's phone is 14 minutes later, and he's not connected to a tower. The phone is either off or in an area with no coverage. So the question is, who's right? Did the guys head east and then north back up to Christian's house? Or did they turn onto Highway 74 and head south to Becky's? This call becomes even more difficult to pin down because it was an incoming call. Incoming calls cannot be used for location unless you have the full detailed report showing what's known as the final cell face and number. Most people call this the terminating tower, but that's actually not the right terminology. And it causes some confusion because in the short form report that Special Agent Bowles was working off of at trial, it shows the terminating CG column as tower 745. But as he explained on the stand, you can't use that for location. Terminating actually just means that the phone received the call. So if you make a call from your cell phone, it will show up as a mobile originating call because the connection originated on your phone. If someone calls you, that's called a mobile terminating call. That means that the connection terminated or went to your phone. So originating and terminating are just terms used to describe the actual connection of the phone call. The sender originates the connection and the receiver terminates it. And by terminating it, that doesn't mean that they hung up and ended the call. It means that they completed the connection to start the call. Now let's get into some other terms that sound confusing, but I'm hoping I can make them simple for you. The first is sector. The two towers that we're going to be talking about today each have three sectors. A sector is an antenna, and it's also referred to as a cell. The best way I can describe it to you without pictures in front of me is if you look at the clock face of an analog clock. Imagine that clock face is the cell tower, like you're looking down on it from above. In most cases, the cell phone companies want to have coverage all the way around the clock face. 360 degrees. They do this by installing three different antennas on the tower. The configuration of the antennas depends on the areas that they need to provide coverage. A typical configuration might be to have one antenna, or cell, pointing due north, so pointing right at 12 o'clock, and another cell pointing southeast, so 4.30, and another pointing southwest, so 7.30. Basically, if you're looking down at that, you've made a pie that you've cut into three big pieces. Each piece equals 120 degrees of the overall circle. And right there is the first misconception that I want to address. People tend to look at a diagram like this and think that the first cell that we described, the one pointing due north, must only provide coverage to the north, since that's the way it's facing. But that's not at all true. Remember, the purpose of the three cells, or sector antennas, is to provide 360 degrees of coverage around the tower. So it can't only cover north. All things being perfect and equal, that cell is responsible for providing coverage to one-third of the circle, or 120 degrees. So 60 degrees on either side of the antenna. But the coverage is actually even larger than that, because in order to avoid dropped calls, the coverage areas have to overlap. And that gets me to our next term, beam width. Beam width is one of the things that was not addressed in Ed's post, so I assume it wasn't addressed with the engineer either, but I don't know that for certain. I mentioned above that the example I gave was based on everything being perfect and equal. But in the real world, that's rarely the case. Every tower is designed, programmed, and configured to cover specific areas with the three sector antennas. Beam width is how wide of an angle the antenna is designed to cover. And if you want to really understand how this could be possible, look at any cell antenna around your area. When I say that there's an antenna pointed north, if you look at that sector of a cell tower, you'll see there's not just one antenna there. The antenna or cell is actually a series of usually three antennas. The center one may be pointed north, but the two next to it are pointed off to the northeast and the northwest. Each of the three sectors have this cell of antennas. That's why it's actually called a cell, not just a sector antenna. But just know that an antenna actually is a series of antennas. Typically, these cells will cover 180 to 200 degrees, and that's to provide overlap but some can cover upwards of 220 degrees. And these antennas even provide coverage in the opposite direction that they're facing, in some cases for quite a distance. Depending on the coverage needs, you can see all different types of configurations of the cells on the tower. In fact, one of the towers in question today has an odd configuration. Tower 745 is the one that's located a mile and a half down Highway 74, and it has no antennas pointed to the west, Because there's nothing there but mountains. Which brings me to our next term, azimuth. As I'm moving on, I don't want you to get overwhelmed by these terms. I want to make sure I'm explaining them to you, but I promise I'm going to break this down and make it simple when we get into the analysis of the actual call. Now when you look at the case docs for today, you'll see in the cell site list a column that says azimuth. All that is is the degree that that cell or sector antenna is facing. So an azimuth of 90 means that that cell is pointing at 90 degrees. So go back to your clock. Zero degrees is due north, so if we go 90 degrees, that's due east or three o'clock. An azimuth of 180 is six o'clock or due south. 270 or nine o'clock is due west, and like I said, zero is due north. So the three cells on Tower 745 are positioned at 15, which is north-northeast, 90, which is due east, and 180, which is due south. There are no antennas pointed anywhere to the west at all. And again, that's because there are no roads in that direction, there's just mountains. Next up is an extremely important part of understanding what happened on this call. And again, this is something that wasn't addressed in Ed's post. And again, I'm making the assumption then that it also was not discussed with the engineer. There are several types of cells. But the two we're dealing with today are what are known as macro cells and micro cells. And remember, a cell is a sector. Both towers that we're dealing with on this call are set up with one macro cell, So one of the sectors is a macro and two micro cells. That means just about what you probably think it means. One sector or cell on each of these towers is designed to have a massive coverage area. That would be the macro cell. And when I say massive, I mean massive, like 10, 20, sometimes 30 miles. And for the tower on Highway 74, that's Tower 745, Sector 2 is the macro cell, which happens to be the first cell Robert connected to on this call, which makes perfect sense, but I'm going to explain that to you in a little bit. Sector 2 has an azimuth of 180, which means that it's pointed south generally, but it's a macro cell that covers 10 miles beyond the point where Highway 74 turns west to the south. But it's a macro cell that to the south covers 10 miles beyond the point where Highway 74 turns west. It has the strength to cover west 15 miles past Pinyon Pines. And I say it has the strength because the mountains are in the way, so it doesn't actually cover that area, even though the signal is capable of reaching all the way past Anza and almost to Hemet. To the east, it covers almost the entire valley floor, even past Interstate 10 to the east. And to the northwest, it covers Highway 111 almost all the way to Palm Springs. And it covers just as much to the northeast. It even has coverage for about five miles due north of the tower. To put that in perspective, Robert and Christian could have left Robert's house, drove down 111 all the way to the Sacred Heart Church, turned around and drove back to Christian's house, and stayed in the coverage area of this one macro cell for all of it other than the last couple miles before they got to Christian's house. It is a huge, massive coverage area. That being said, macro cells tend not to be the dominant sector for a lot of the area that they cover. The reason being is that they're designed to cast a large net, but if the people in that coverage area actually all use that cell, there's no way it could handle the capacity. To put it in plain language, and this is not scientific or a technical explanation, but it's the practical application the way I understand it from what's been explained to me, the macrocell's job is generally just to connect to handsets to let the system know where they are. That's why they're so big. Then, as soon as that happens, the system will switch the handset over to the closest microcell for the actual use, which is why I've been saying since the beginning... You cannot use incoming calls for location unless you have the full sector data. The short form that we've been working with only showed the first tower that the phone connected to, which in most cases, and on this call specifically, is a macro cell for an incoming call. You have to look at the cell that the phone switched to once it was located for its actual location. All you can tell from the first cell connection is that the phone was somewhere in the macro cell's range, which in this case means the phone could have been in Palm Springs, Cathedral City, Indio. You get the picture. This cell covers over 75% of the entire valley and Highway 74. A great example of this, for those of you that are familiar with the Anand Syed case, is when he received an incoming call and the initial connection was made on a tower in downtown Washington, D.C., when he was in Baltimore, that happened because it was an incoming call and the first connection was to a microcell. The last couple terms I want to clarify are initial and final cell face and cell number. This is the critical information that we need in order to know where Robert actually was, or at least where his phone actually was when this call came in. And this is where a lot of people, myself included, before learning the difference this week, use the wrong terminology a lot and it becomes confusing. Initial cell face is the first tower that made a connection to the handset when the call was sent. Some people refer to this as the originating tower, but that term just confuses things because it means something completely different. So in this episode, when reviewing the documents, initial cell face is the first tower that connected to Robert's phone. Underneath that in the document, you'll see initial cell number. This is the sector antenna, or cell, that the connection was made on. So where for this call, it says initial cell face, 745, initial cell number, two, that means that on the first connection, when the system found Robert's phone, It did it through Tower 745, Sector 2, the macro cell. Underneath that, you'll see Final Cell Face and Final Cell Number. Same thing. This is the tower and sector that the system switched the phone to after it was found. In this case, you'll see it says Final Cell Face 705, Final Cell Number 1. That means that the system switched the handset over to Tower 705, Sector 1. And that is the information that we need to determine location on an incoming call. Once the system figured out where the phone was, it then switched over to the closest cell with the dominant coverage in that area, which in this case is a micro-cell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com.
1: Play for free right
0: now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void way prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, now I'm going to go through Ed's analysis as quickly as possible and break down where his mistakes are. And again, I want to point out that I'm calling them mistakes on purpose. I do not believe that Ed's intention was to purposely mislead anyone. My belief is that he did this analysis based on the limited information that he had, and I'd like to hope that at the conclusion of this episode, with the additional information, he'll realize where he went wrong. Ed's conclusion is pretty simple to understand, and it's reasonable for someone that only has a very basic understanding of how the sectors work. And to be crystal clear, I'm not here pretending that I knew all of this myself prior to this week. I've spent all week talking to experts to get a clearer understanding. When I saw these documents a month ago, they were completely Greek to me. I also want to credit listener Elizabeth, who does this kind of work using a software called TRAX for getting the ball rolling for me. She shared some maps and models of tower coverage that led me to asking the right questions, which is what got us to the point where we were able to figure all this out. Ed starts out by pointing out that the initial cell face was Tower Seven Forty Five, and the initial cell number is Sector Two. Again, Tower Seven Forty Five is located about a mile and a half south southwest of the intersections of Highway One Eleven and Seventy Four to the south. And by the way, I'm going to repeat myself a lot as we go through this. I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page as we move along. So the Sector Two antenna of Tower Seven Forty Five has an azimuth of 180, which means it's facing due south. Ed concludes that since the antenna is facing south, and the only road south of the tower is the continuation of Highway 74, Robert's phone must have been south of this tower when the connection was made. On its face, that makes perfect sense. South-facing antenna, phone must be south. There's one road to the south, so there you have it. They were on 74. What I don't think Ed knew when he made that post is that, as I mentioned earlier, Sector 2 of Tower 745 is a macro tower that covers almost the entire valley to the north and east of the tower, as well as 74. It has a massive beam width and reach. So while it seems to make sense that the phone had to be to the south of the tower, that's simply not true. On the map on our website, you'll see the coverage area of Tower 745, Sector 2. Since this was the initial cell, Robert's phone could have been anywhere in that red cloud when the system found him. It doesn't have to be in a dominant area, just somewhere in that coverage area. And I'm going to repeat this over and over. That's why you can't use the initial cell of an incoming call for location, period. In a little bit, I'm going to talk about dominant coverage areas but they don't have any effect on the initial cell of an incoming call. When someone calls your cell phone, the initial connection is not made on the closest cell with dominant coverage. The system is just trying to find the handset at that point. So that was Ed's first mistake. The assumption that you can't be north or northeast of a south-facing sector cell when the system makes its initial connection. From there, he moves on to the final cell face number. In this case, the final cell is Tower 705, Sector 1. Tower 705 is located about 4 miles north-northeast of Tower 745. It's in the valley in Palm Desert. 705, Sector 1 has an azimuth of 120. And here's where Ed makes another mistake. A couple, actually. First, he says that a 120 azimuth is a southeast-facing cell, but that's incorrect. Sector 1 is actually facing east-southeast, so 4 o'clock on your clock face. That may not seem like a big difference, but it really is, and this is why. The second mistake Ed makes here is that he says Highway 74 is south of Tower 705. That is also false. Tower 705 is located about two miles north-northeast of the beginning of Highway 74, which runs in a south-southwest direction. If you draw a line due south from Tower 705, it will never touch Highway 74. Highway 74 is actually south-southwest of the tower. And I'm not nitpicking here. It becomes very important. So then he puts those two mistakes together. And I'm going to quote his conclusion. Quote, In summary, the sector information indicates that the 713 call connected from a location generally south of Tower 745 and terminated from a location generally southeast of Tower 705. Comparing the sectors to the map, the only road that is south of 745 is Highway 74, which is the road that leads to Becky's. Highway 74 is also south of Tower 705. Tower 745 and 705 have very sporadic coverage on 74, so it makes sense that a call would start on 745 and end on Tower 705, even if the call only lasted 27 seconds. End quote. There are a number of errors in this conclusion. First, he says that because the initial cell was the south-facing sector of Tower 745, the call must have connected from somewhere south of the tower. As I just explained, that's not at all true. Sector 2 of 745 is a macro cell that covers the majority of the valley. The phone literally could have been five miles due north of the tower and still made that same connection. And again, a little louder for the people in back, This is why you cannot use the initial cell of an incoming call to determine location. Then Ed contradicts himself. He says that the call terminated somewhere southeast of Tower 705, which for starters should say east-southeast. But then he says Highway 74 is also south of Tower 705. On first read-through, his conclusion makes perfect sense. It definitely did for me the first time I read it, but that's because I read past the mistakes. You have a cell that is facing east-south-east, and a road that starts slightly west of the tower, and meanders south-southwest from there. Those two data points don't fit together. Even if you don't correct his directional mistakes, it still doesn't work. He says that 74 is south of Tower 705 and that Sector 1 points southeast. Even that doesn't make sense. Let me break it down on the clock face for you, and hopefully that'll make things more clear. First, we'll use his scenario with the incorrect data. Look at your clock. The center of the clock is Tower 705. With Ed's data, Highway 74 is at 6 o'clock. So imagine a hand of the clock pointing straight down to 6. And the sector antenna is pointed towards 430, again with Ed's data. So the other hand is pointed over towards 430. As you can see, those aren't pointed in the same direction. And that's problematic in and of itself once we get to the final cell. But now let's do it with the actual data. Again, the center of the clock is Tower 705. Highway 74 is actually located at seven o'clock, and the Sector 1 antenna is actually pointed towards Four o'clock. That's a 90-degree difference. It's not even close. They're actually completely perpendicular to each other. Ed's analysis was flawed from the very beginning. Not because he's not a sharp guy, but mainly because he was trying to use directionality with both the initial and final cells. And again, You cannot use the initial cell for location on incoming calls. And I'm not repeating that to harp on Ed, I'm just repeating that so you understand it. He did a good job of fitting a round peg into a square hole, but if he looked even just a little bit further, he would have realized that the scenario he presented just isn't possible. He used the gladiator drive test from trial to see that indeed Tower 705 does have a little bit of coverage on 74. That's why he concluded that the phone must have jumped from 745 to 705 because of the spotty coverage. He just needed to look a little bit further into that report, the state's own experts report. Indeed, Tower 705 has some coverage on 74, but the Sector 1 antenna that Robert was connected to does not. This is double confirmed. First, the track software shows that the maximum range of Tower 705, Sector 1, is very small. It's a microcell. And in a perfect world without obstructions, it is not capable of reaching anywhere south of Tower 745. And that's just the area where it can cover and I know right now someone's already drafting a post about how track software is bogus and that it isn't acceptable science. Save it. I've read the articles. I've read the court order from the Colorado case. In that one particular case, and I'm sure there are a handful of others, the issue was that the defense believed the software was showing too big of a range for a tower. Essentially, the expert using the software was claiming because the coverage map showed the place where the defendant wasn't supposed to be, he concluded that he must have been there. When in reality, it only showed that he could have been there. He also could have been on I-25, which as it turns out is exactly where he was. So just like any other software or anything else out there, there are a couple of cases where the software was not accepted by a judge in court, but it's currently still used in court all the time right now and accepted. It's one of the industry standards to do this type of mapping. But if you want to use that argument, feel free. If the coverage area is actually smaller, like they contended in the Colorado case, then the sector coverage is even further away from the 745 Tower. And aside from that, as I said, the data is double confirmed. Gary Gayetti, the state's expert, mapped out the actual coverage for the area and showed that the cell of Tower 705 that does cover those little spots on Highway 74 is Sector 2. The final cell face and number is the only cell that can be used to determine location on an incoming call, period. And in this case, that cell has zero coverage on Highway 74, and that's even according to the state's expert. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now having a full understanding of how locating a handset using sector data works, this is what the data is actually telling us. And with that understanding, it's surprisingly simple to figure out. Robert's phone had been idle for about seven minutes when this call occurred meaning he wasn't using it. When that happens, the system doesn't know where he is. But it knows about where he is. So at 713, Becky dialed Robert's number, and the system started looking for him to connect to his phone. Because on his previous two calls, he was headed southeast on Highway 111, that's where the system started sending signals to find him. The macro cell of Tower 745 was the first to be able to connect to his handset. So now, once it connected, the system knows his location. Even though he has a connection to the initial cell, that cell isn't really usable from his location. At that point, the system immediately switched him over to the dominant micro cell for his location. That's how incoming calls work. And I don't mean sometimes, every time. Incoming calls are a two step process. First, the system has to find the handset with any tower that can connect to it. Then, determine its location from that connection, and then immediately switch over to the dominant cell for that location. In this case, the dominant cell was tower 705, sector 1. The antenna that faces east-southeast from tower 705. That is where Robert was when he received that call. Without question, he was in the dominant coverage zone of Tower 705, Sector 1. This is the most important finding that we've made throughout this year of investigating. Not only is it impossible for Robert and Christian to have been up the hill on 74 towards Becky's house, but where this call connected they had to be east of 74, and that's very important. That means that they had already passed the turn to go to Becky's house. They were traveling southeast down the Highway 111 on their way to the church. And when this call came in, this call that the state used to say that they were heading in Becky's direction, when it came in, they were located northeast of Highway 74. They had already passed it. Now, I can already hear the keyboards clicking away with people trying to refute all of this. I'm not an expert, so why should anyone take my word for it? Well, like I said, I've been talking to experts all week, but you all know my standard. I don't expect any of you to take my word for that, nor should you. You shouldn't take anyone's word who just says they talked to an unnamed, unvetted expert. I wouldn't have presented any of this to you unless I had a verified and named expert to go on the record, so I contacted one of the world's best. The gentleman that you're about to hear from is named Mike Dowd. Mike actually wrote some of the curriculum that FBI agents like Kevin Bowles used to learn how to interpret location data. He's been specifically using cell phone sector data to locate people for over two decades. He worked in special operations in the U.S. Army and for the CIA, and as I mentioned, he trains FBI and CIA agents to do the same. Here's Mike's expert analysis. Can you share with my audience what your your background and qualifications are, what makes you qualified to analyze cell phone sector data like this?
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm a 20-year I'm a Army special operations veteran uh, working in the field of, of uh, human and significant uh, tradecraft, So, you know, as well as doing this for the CIA and supporting the FBI and others. And what I did and what I still do for a very long time is use cellular information, i.e. towers, uh, emitters, and things like that, to hunt and track people in very austere locations around the world. Um, I've written several curriculums for the US government, teaching them how to do this. Uh, and I'm still very much involved in teaching people how to do this to this day.
0: Perfect. So it sounds like you're more of an expert than me. So I'll uh, <laughs> we'll d- default to you. <laughs> um, it, it sounds to me like, you know, I, I sent you all the data on this call. We're talking about the 7 13 PM phone call from Robert Pape's handset. Um, yep. I, I, sent you all the data and you got back with me with your, with your conclusion in minutes. Uh, so it seems like it's not as complicated as, as maybe some people thought it was.
1: No, I mean the, the information, if, if you know what to look for, is pretty clear cut and dry. I mean, all of the analysis is done for you. So all you have to do is just look at the data as it is. And you kind of get to the point very, very quickly.
0: Right. And that and that was I mentioned when, I, when we spoke yesterday, um, special agent Kevin Bowles from the FBI. I think he said you may either knew him or knew of him. Uh, he had testified about this call at trial. And and he said at the trial that he can't he couldn't tell you where the person was. He couldn't give you a location or say where they were going. Unless he had the sector data, which is what we have now, and th- does that sound right to you?
1: That that's absolutely correct. Without without that data and knowing what panel, if you will, when we talk about sector data, so what cell ID, what panel he was coming off of uh, as the handset um, received and then entered into the call, there's no way of there's no way of knowing. Now, if you have other data like His drive before he reached that tower and his drive away from that tower, if he's in a call or just uh, doing a handoff, you can kind of infer some things from there. But looking at the data that they have, this is a macro cell, right? And that macro cell covers about 35 kilometers in either direction, if you will, so if that's all you have, there's no way of knowing until that handset connects to another tower, even within the coverage of that macro cell, that zeroes into to a very specific geolocation uh, location on the map.
0: Gotcha. And that and that is does that have to do with um, the way I just explained to it, uh, explained it in the episode here up to this, and I just kind of want you either to confirm or tell me if I'm wrong here. A lot of it has to do with it being incoming calls that he connected to that macro cell. The first antenna that he connected to when the call was coming in, that's the piece that you, you can't tell where they're at. But then it switches to, it, in this case, it switched to Tower 705 Sector 1 almost immediately after that, that that's the tower we should be looking at. And that's the panel we should be looking at for his location.
1: Correct. And the way it works is your handset is actually just camped out on any tower, doesn't necessarily mean that that's the closest tower to it or the tower that's going to receive service, but your handset is in what's called an idle mode. So when your handset's in idle mode, you're connected to the network, but there's nothing asking it or telling it to do anything. So it's not in a in a state where it actually needs to use resources and report its location so that it can receive service. When the handset gets paged across the network, so you make a phone call, whether it's in the same city or from five states away, and it goes through the system and starts paging. It says, Hey, where is this handset? Right. And it says, Oh, the handset is registered in this LAC location area code, which is a group of towers. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it says, Okay, you're about to receive service. So the handset says, Okay, I need to get on the closest tower to me so that that phone call can actually come through. And that handset jumps on that tower and your call comes through and you receive your text message or your voice phone call. And that's where the handset is.
0: Gotcha. And so that's what we see in this incoming call where you have the initial cell face would be the one where it found it. And then the final cell face sector is the one where it shows you where it actually is when it connects.
1: Absolutely. You can even look at, you know, if you're, if you watch and it happens very, very quickly, Mm -hmm. right? So if you look at, if you look at the call data record, you know, literally the, the call comes, the call comes in, right? The, the handset prepares to take the call by switching to the terminating cell that it's going to receive the call on based on its location, gets a channel, and then all of the rest of the data uh uh, goes in there for the handset to to receive the call.
0: Perfect. So now we'll look at this this call specifically, and it's a it's a twenty it's a unanswered phone call that was connected to the handset for only twenty seven seconds, uh, and and you have the, the 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 sector data and all the information there um, in the in the report I gave you uh, on, on page three. There it shows the the maximum coverage area for. Tower seven forty five sector two, which is the initial cell face. Uh, and to me that looks like a the coverage is huge on that.
1: Yeah, that, that's a that's a macro cell, right? So macro cells cover very large, like austere or rural environments. But there are all there are also like once you get into like the city or the town, there are smaller there are smaller towers there called micro cells, pico cells, and even smaller femto cells that cover a more densely populated area. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yep. So, so, you know, so that that big tower may cover, it looks like, you know, several hundred square kilometers, right? But the capacity of that tower of every one of those people wanting to get on the phone, it would fail. Mm -hmm. So you have these smaller towers in and around where the densely populated areas are, where people can actually receive service and and make their make their phone calls.
0: Gotcha. So am I am I correct in saying that since this is sector is the initial cell face that when this call came in Robert's handset the only thing we can tell is that it was somewhere in that red cloud.
1: Correct. It says I'm 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 here.
0: Gotcha. And it wouldn't and it wouldn't be accurate to say Based on this since the the tower face or the, the sector face is facing south, it wouldn't be accurate to say he had to be south of this tower at this point.
1: No, that's absolutely incorrect. Okay. He could be anywhere in that red cloud.
0: Gotcha. So then we move down to so then it switches over to tower 705. Sector one is the terminating cell face. and we see on the, the next page there, we have the the dominant coverage area for tower 705 and in the yellow there is is sector 1 where it covers so based on my estimation or my understanding of the data the fo- where the location of the phone actually was would be in that area where sector 1 of tower 5 or tower 705 is the dominant coverage
1: that's correct and if you were doing any kind of collection or geolocation, like precision geolocation operation, that's going to be your start point when you start hunting for that individual.
0: Okay. Uh, and and what we see on that is that Tower Seven Hundred Five Sector One has zero dominant coverage on Highway Seventy Four that heads south. Correct. Okay. So uh, I, I guess very simply, um, you know, again as it, it, as, as you've, you've kind of made it very simple for us. With the data that we have, would you say that Robert's handset was traveling south on highway seventy four when this call came in?
1: No, I would not
0: okay, and if you had to if if you if you were looking for him based on this data, where would you be looking?
1: I would be looking for him anywhere in that yellow coverage area
0: right which and that's that would be East of 74, now that's, that's Highway 111 there. So somewhere, there, there's actually no roads, I don't think, south of 111 there. So it'd be north of Highway 111 in the valley, not going on 74. That's correct. This isn't complicated, really not at all. I've spent this episode explaining the process to you in detail and you've now heard confirmation from someone who's been doing this for 20 years and he's been doing it in situations where if he gets it wrong, people die. He's the best of the best. That said, unless you come at me with an expert saying that Mike is wrong, I don't care at all if you disagree with him. You can take your bias somewhere else. Here, we have work to do. One of the things that first alerted me to the fact that Ed had this wrong was that it just didn't fit with anything else in this case. Before I close, I want to talk for just a few minutes about some of the behaviors that we see in the series of phone calls around the 7 o'clock hour when Becky started blowing up Robert and Christian's phones. The only time Robert actually talked to Becky was at 6.14 p.m., almost exactly an hour before the 7.13 call. I theorized a couple weeks ago that maybe Robert did intend to go up to Becky's that night, but he didn't want Christian to know. I want you to think about this sequence of events. And again, this is just a hypothesis for me, but look at the actual data points and see what you think about it. So Robert talked to Becky at 6.14. Well, let's assume for a minute that on that phone call, he said, yep, I'm headed your way. How does that fit with the rest of the calls? I don't think any of us here disagree with the fact that somehow or another, after that six fourteen call, Becky thought Robert was coming. So again, how does this fit? Well, the sequence starts 11 minutes earlier. Christian called Robert at 6.03 p.m. This is after they got home from work. And on this call, Christian is calling to see if Robert wants to go mess around with the paintball gun and hang out. And I assume that Robert agrees and says he will. But then, 10 minutes later... Becky calls Robert, and he picks up and asks if he'll come up for that hike that they had talked about the day before. Now, there's a couple of things that could have happened here. One is the scenario I presented the other day where Robert says, yeah, I'll head that way. Or there's another version of this where maybe he said, I don't know, because she said there's going to be another guy there, and he didn't like it. If he's telling the truth, what he said in his interview. But let's just say he tells her that he had just made plans with Christian, but he's happy to blow Christian off and head up there. And then Becky also tells him at this point that another guy would be there. Remember she had talked to Javier at 5:30 and he said he was going to head up there as well. What we do know is that after Robert hangs up with Becky, a minute later he calls Christian. And we heard from Christian that during this phone call Robert said that he can't hang out because he has to go to church. And I think that's probably exactly what happened in that phone call. But according to Robert and Christian, Christian said, oh, that's no problem. I'll come with you and we can hang out afterward. Now, again, we've got a series of different possibilities here. One is that Robert was going to blow off church because I do know from having personal discussions with his mother that they did talk about going to church. She did tell him he needed to go to church and she did tell him to try calling Sacred Heart. So a couple possibilities are he was actually going to go to church and then maybe go to Becky's or he was going to go to church and never go to Becky's or he was going to tell his mom he was going to church, but instead go to Becky's. I have no idea. There's no way to know which one of those was actually happening. But what we do know is that when he called Christian, which was one minute after he talked to Becky, he told Christian he can't hang out because he's going to church. And that's when Christian says, well, I'll go with you. Now, what I think is the most likely scenario here, certainly not saying it's fact, is that Robert really was planning on going to see Becky. But he didn't want Christian to know that. He didn't want his mom to know that. He didn't want anybody to know that. But he wanted to go see Becky. But now that Christian said he's going to go with him, for Robert, the plan is off. He's not about to go up there with Christian. Remember him and Christian just the day before had had the conversation with Becky. And after she left, they both said, no way, we're not going. So in this hypothetical scenario, Robert decides to go ahead and ghost Becky and just hang out with Christian instead probably because he knew he really shouldn't have gone up there anyway. And I also don't think he liked the idea that another guy would be there. Now, here's where things start to get interesting. At 6.20, Javier calls Becky again. And here's where he says he says that he's on his way. But he's in Anza at that point, which is past Pinion Pines. Now, remember, Javier says that he was driving around up in that area just because he wanted to go for a ride. His story changed several times. At first, he had no intention of going to Becky's. Then he absolutely was going to go to Becky's. And most of us got the impression that he was hiding something, but I don't think anybody could put their finger on it. Well, my personal hypothesis is I think he was going to Anza to probably pick up a bag of weed before going to Becky's. It's the only reason I can think of why he would drive that far past Pinion Pines when all of his friends said that he was going up there for the purpose of going to Becky's. But then at 640... Becky calls Javier. This is the call where he says that she told him not to come to her house because Robert seemed uncomfortable with him being there. So, she must have gotten some kind of vibe during that 6:14 call that he wasn't cool with another guy joining them. Now, this is the part that gets really interesting. If Robert said he was heading up to Becky's at 6:14, it's about a 45-minute drive from his house. So, she should have been expecting him around 7: Remember what Becky said to Javier at 6:40. She said, "Robert's on his way." So 25 minutes after Robert and Becky talked, she thought that he was on his way to her house. So ask yourself honestly, why would Becky call Robert at 6:53 if she thought he was on the way? It's because that was about the time she was expecting him to arrive. She calls him at 6:53. She tries Christian at 7.05. He starts to call her back at 7.09, but hangs up as soon as she answers, which makes perfect sense, in my theory, because he doesn't know Robert's blowing her off, so of course he'd call back. And then as he is, Robert tells him to hang up. He acts like he's just avoiding her, but probably he just really didn't want Christian to find out that he had told her that he was going to go. Then Becky tries Christian again seconds later. He ignores it. She calls and checks her voicemail three times. Then at 7.13, she tries calling Robert again. That's the call covered in this episode that he ignored and let go to voicemail. Then the phones go dark, but Becky continued calling at 7.27 and 7.34. Becky makes six calls to Robert and Christian between 6.53 and 7.34. Why do you think that is? Is that something someone does when someone's on their way? especially when the second half of the trip she knows has no cell coverage? No, of course not. She was calling because Robert told her at 6.14 that he was headed to her house and she was expecting him around 7. She was calling because she realized he blew her off. I don't see what other explanation is there. And flip that around. If Robert and Christian were actually going to Becky's like she thought, or she at least thought Robert was, why the hell wouldn't they answer her calls? That makes literally zero sense. If they were actually headed up there and they were just running late, they would have answered the damn phone. There's no way they would just blow off those phone calls. And it's not like they didn't have their phones handy. Christian started to call her in the middle of that and then hung up on her. Remember, that wasn't a missed call. The landline shows that the phone was answered and Christian hung up in one second. And in the middle of all that, They talked to Sam Geyer on the phone, and I had him on the show. And what did he say they were talking about? Paintball. Not a hike. No hike. Never a hike. They talked about a paintball gun. The bottom line is that whether you think it makes sense for Becky to call the guys six times if she thought they were on their way, or if you do think it's reasonable to believe that they would have ignored her calls if they were on the way... The thing is, we actually know that they weren't. For a fact. The cell phone data clearly shows that Robert and Christian were right where they said they were when Becky called Robert at 7.13 p.m. They were north and east of Highway 74. There's not a cell expert in this world that will refute that. They could not have been on a road connected to a cell that doesn't have service on that road, period. And the worst part is that I'm pretty fucking sure the prosecution knew that. The state requested the sector data. The state received the sector data. The state read the sector data, and the state are the ones that put the sector data into the discovery file. And I'm not saying it's excusable for the defense not to have found it in that file. It's not excusable at all, but it's understandable. It wasn't added to the folder with all the other cell records. It was tucked away in another random folder labeled with the officer that requested its name, Willis. And let's not forget that the state told the defense that they had never requested it. There is just no fucking way that the state didn't know that sector data was in that file. They knew it was there and they knew it was going to destroy their case so they lied. And they got the defense to agree to stipulate that it never existed when it was right there the entire time. This document proves that the theory the state presented to the jury was false and the fucking prosecutor knew exactly what he was doing. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery, edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay wood Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week then other reward levels include t-shirts hats and even the opportunity to co-host one of our friday follow-up episodes just go to patreon.com truthandjustice you can also do us a huge favor by going to itunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review and lastly you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at Truth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice